welcome to the Coaches Rising podcast. And today we're going to be talking about ethics and coaching. And a common response for coaches when we hear that word ethics is that eyes glaze over and we think, I'm, you know, this is a list of 10 commandments of things I shouldn't do. And in this conversation, we're going to explore why that is just the wrong way to think about ethics, why ethics is central to the work we do, actually, and central to our lives in general. And so we're going to be exploring about how can we think about ethics? What are ethics? What are some of the key domains or areas in which ethics applies in our work as coaches? So I'm going to be joined by Eve Turner and Jonathan Passmore in this conversation who have just recently published the book, The Ethical Coaches Handbook, along with Wendy Ann Smith, Yi Ling Lai and David Clutterbuck. And just a few more words about each of those. Eve is a highly accomplished coach, mentor and supervisor and facilitator working with clients in the public, private, education and not-for-profit sectors. Eve is the immediate past chair of the professional coaching body Apex, is the co-founder of the Climate Coaching Alliance and founder and co-lead of the Global Supervisors Network. Jonathan Passmore is a globally recognized coaching psychologist, executive coach and supervisor and ranked among the top 10 professional coaches worldwide. He's also published widely over the last three decades on leadership change and coaching, including over 40 books and over 200 scientific articles and book chapters, making him one of the most published coaching researchers in the world. So we are in good hands. Just quickly, uh, before we dive in, if you feel like sharing this podcast, I would really appreciate that. It helps get the word out about the podcast and share this awesome wisdom from the speakers. And if you are not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about everything we're doing at Coaches Rising, then you can head to coachesrising.com and put your name in the sign-up box you find there on the homepage. All right, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Jonathan and Eve. All right, so I'm joined by Eve and Jonathan, and we're going to be talking about ethics today. So let me just check in with you both first. How are each of you doing? Well, I'm doing fine today. I think it's interesting, isn't it, when we talk about ethics what does it mean and what people get because I don't want everyone to turn off because they've heard the word ethics to me it's we're talking about life and why we make decisions the way we make them and all the things that are factors in making those decisions so I'm fine thank you well it's great to meet you Joel really pleased to be here uh, and to be talking a little bit about our book talking a little bit about research and talking about what the future might hold for ethical decision making in the coaching industry. Nice. Well, welcome to both of you. I I, I like what each of you are saying there because I think that, yeah, a common response when we mention that word ethics is people, maybe their eyes glaze over a bit and, you know, it's always given a bit of lip service and coach trainings and, um, you know, I, I, like you say, yeah, actually it's, we're seeing it as something separate to our moment to moment everyday experience as a coach. And that's just not the way I see it. And, so, you know, we, we'll go into, uh, I think, some specific practical ways that ethic we can look at ethics in coaching in our conversation, AI, uh, race, um, you know, how do we promote ourselves and stuff. But maybe we can begin with just if each of you could speak a little bit more into why, how do you see ethics, basically, and why is it important that we talk about it beyond that, you know, the usual list of his 15 things coaches should never do with their clients. Yeah. Gosh, well, 
There's so much we can say. So I'll just say a little, maybe then, Jonathan, and maybe I'll come back. But first of all, why why ethics? Ethics is important to me because I think it's about my life. I think it's about everything. I think I'm making ethical decisions from the moment I get up in the morning. So to me, ethics isn't, it's easy to see it as different, but to me, it's part of a systemic world where everything's connected. And so ethics is just part of my life. Um, so to me, it's integrated, it's important. And, and I also think it's just infinitely interesting. You know, why do people make the judgments they make? In coaching, there's been a bit of a challenge because maybe for some time people have seen it as, well, as long as I follow a code, and there are a number of codes, you know, the ICF have their code, there's the Global Code of Ethics and the EMC, AC, APEX and others, Commensa, um, have, have signed up for that code and, that, and they have their own codes too. But a code is like a, a moment frozen in time, isn't it? It can only ever be guidance when actually what we're talking about is people's relationships with each other. How do we create a way forward? Because because I'm looking at you, Joel, and, you know, you'll have your own way of seeing the situation. And I'm looking at Jonathan. He might have his way of seeing the situation. I might have my way. How are we going to come to a way forward? Are we going to say, oh, let's follow a code? Or are we going to say, let's talk about what we each mean? And then that allows us to bring in people's cultures, people's backgrounds, People are in different parts of the world. What does that mean to you? Oh, that means this to me. So what's the way forward? It's a relational experience. It's a relational thing. It's not about um, codes. I'm going to hand over to Jonathan now, so I don't say too much. So I think I start from a place that coaching is a special, intimate relationship. And the success of coaching outcomes is predicated on the ability, willingness of the client to trust their coach. And without that trust, the real work in coaching doesn't get done. And thus contracting, and particularly the foundations of contracting, so what is that contract built upon? Ethical practice are essential ingredients to enable clients to enter into a relationship of trust and to do the work that they need to do. And coaches need to be explicit about the way that they are working with their client. So what is confidential and what's not confidential? Whose interest am I working in? How am I seeking to balance the multiple stakeholders in this relationship? So ethics is at the very heart of coaching without ethical boundaries, practice, standards, the work that we need to do in coaching with our clients would be less effective and may not happen at all. And we risk undermining both that relationship and the wider development of a coaching profession that seeks to serve and operate in the best interests of clients. So that's what's drawn me into an interest in ethics. If we don't have ethics, we're screwed. <laughs> And secondly, as we've started to unpack it, for all of the reasons that Eva said, as you have alluded to, Joel, there seems to be a, a curious lack of interest and engagement around ethics that in one way surprises me and in a second way doesn't. It doesn't surprise me because people go, oh, yeah, they're like the rules. Of course, I follow the rules now. The reality of us as humans is 
we're always looking to break the rules. We're always looking for a little slight cheat. Oh, I only stopped on the yellow line because I had that parcel to pick up. I just meant to drop something. Up. I was just <laughs> stopping to pick someone up. I was doing more than 30 in the 30 mile an hour zone because I had to rush to go and pick my daughter up from hospital because she was just had a baby. Well, there's always an explanation. But as humans, we just push the envelope a little bit. So I think that there's that there are some reasons why individuals um, think that they do, but often don't. But more importantly, I think we as coach trainers interested in this area have tended to be fascinated more by models, frameworks, our own approaches, and thus coach training tends to be dominated by those in the belief that that's what makes the difference. And these other things are sort of, well, they're going to happen anyway. People, of course, stick to the rules. And the reality, as he suggests, is having a set of rules, of course, is helpful, but it's only the very first step towards navigating our way through the million different scenarios that we encounter as coaches working with organizations, coaches with working with individual clients and clients with their myriad relationships in the systems that they operate in. And all of those create ethical moments and some of those create ethical dilemmas that the more we become aware of and sensitive to the complexity and the messiness of ethics, the less we actually know what to do. And that makes it more complicated for us to navigate. And that draws people towards, why don't we just have some nice black and white rules? Tell me what those three things are. And I'll promise to do them, and then I'll get on with the real coaching. Yeah, but 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 messy is but messy can also be fun, and that's the other thing I want to get across. I think ethics is interesting. It's fun. It doesn't have to be, oh my goodness, it's the rules, and if I don't comply, I'm going to be. They won't allow me to practice anymore. Or I won't be a person. I can't be a member. I I just love to read at the beginning of the ethical coaches um, handbook. At the start of chapter one, there's this beautiful quote from Case de Vries. Um, Ethics is not something we choose to have or not have. We have it. It's a given. But we do choose how we make ethical decisions and what we allow us to influence in making those decisions. And I think that sort of says it all. And and I remember John and I having conversations in the past and we've talked about well, what does it mean in different countries? Because we're sitting here and we're sitting in Europe and we're, we're talking with a particular sort of training and particular sorts of backgrounds. I know they'll be different, but there'll be similarities. But what might be, I think Jonathan and I wrote, considered um, corruption or bribery in one country and another country might be considered good practice or normal practice. And I think we have, that's to me what makes it exciting because it comes alive in the discussions and in understanding people's backgrounds and their difference and not making assumptions that there is this right and wrong way. I do think, you know, we might say, well, it's, we can all agree that it's bad to murder someone. But I always think, you know, as a mother, if someone was coming at my son, I'd do anything to defend him. So. I can't say that I would never murder. So I think it's so easy to be drawn into um, that sort of thinking, binary thinking, that things are good and bad. They're right and wrong. And actually, yeah, maybe occasionally there are things like that. But the complexity to me is also the excitement and the dynamics of it and of, and of making it come alive. 
Yeah, Rich. Um, and, and I'm wondering, you know, whether we live in more ethical times, you know, I mean, of course, you could say like every time is an ethical time, but it, it seems that, you know, with the certain these all these crises we face, you know, the ecological crises, for example, uh, maybe that's making ethics more pertinent, you know, in times of stability, maybe we can like rest on our ethical laurels more. But um, um, I, I guess I'm wondering then um, how, how would you invite coaches? Like, is it a question of becoming more ethical, you know? Um, and, and if so, how might we go about that? Is it about becoming more informed about all the different ways ethics is playing out in coaching or is it about or is it and is it about um like developing a certain way of being with our experience in the moment that allows us to like reason or grapple ethically with certain dilemmas we might be facing you know a certain ethical sensibility so so to speak well, let me respond to the first of those questions about are we living in more ethical times? And I suspect if you asked the Vikings or the Romans or the Victorians, they would have all said, we are the highest level of civilization. We are the most ethical uh, because they will have set out what they consider to be the rules. And there will be minor infringements of those and examples where people are cheating the rules. But I think that our ability to be ethical is actually judged by future generations. And while we are highly critical of the ethical practices, let's just take the slave trade as one example of this, uh, and the wealth that was generated by the Victorian era for uh, empire civilizations like the United Kingdom, but there were others. And we now look back and those decisions that individuals made and are highly critical of them. I wonder how future generations will look back on us for the way that we have greedily consumed the finite world resources. And I'm not just talking about the way that we have consumed uh, carbon and burnt fossil fuels. I'm talking about rare earths and multiple other uh, unsustainable practices that we have for our continual desire for growth, growth, growth. I don't hear a single politician, a single thought leader who talks about how do we manage and create a sustainable society, not one that will be sustainable for the next 50 or 100 years, that will be sustainable for the next 10,000 years. Yeah. So I think we will be criticised for being unethical by future generations if we look at that lens. We're as probably unethical as, as we judge those previous societies. Mm. I think that's a really good point, Jonathan. And in one of the chapters, which is called Ethics and the Ecological Environment in Coaching, and it's, and it's subtitled Searching for a New Paradigm, we need to consider, not just in this area, but we need to consider um, what is coaching there to do? Are we there to um, uphold, to sustain uh, practices that are part of that and just take the money and say thank you very much or is our ethical stance one that says we are part of asking questions not what do you think of climate change I've never asked a client, a client that but um, what is the world you want to leave behind for your children your great-grandchildren and in this chapter you know we, we ask questions like 
what would you like to hear our collective great-grandchildren say about our contribution to their world through our work as coaches? How might this provide us a compass for ethical decision-making and coaching? And, and, you know, one of the cases, one of the vignettes that's used in the book, which I think will really get people thinking, is from somebody called Zoe Cohen, who is a coach, a supervisor, very well thought of, but who has become an activist in this world. And she said, so the challenge facing the coaching profession is the same one facing every situation, every profession, to accept the truth of the devastating catastrophic situation we're in. And that has taken me into civil disobedience. Um, and everyone's part of that. And whether I'm a coach or whatever, I feel utterly compelled to speak my truth to as many people as I can. And if that means that I annoy them as they don't want to work with me as a client or whatever, then so be it. I can't look myself in the mirror if I don't speak and act in line with what I know to be the case. And obviously, Zoe is sharing something personal and she wouldn't force her views on clients. But one of the questions we then get people to think about is, so hearing and reading what you've read, what do you think now? What does this bring up for you? What might you reflect on and discuss? And that's very much the aim of the book is to bring up some of these difficult, meaty questions. And not it's not about a code. It's what does this mean for you? So now what does this on reflection mean you might do differently? And so help us become or see ethics as broader thinking. If I tackle the, the, the second part of your question and add maybe upon what Eve was just saying, there isn't a moment when we wake up and we suddenly realise that we're ethical. And there is a, a commitment, I suppose, to being curious, to being open, to engaging in these topics and recognising that the codes of ethics that are part of our professional practices as coaches uh, are really just a starting point to engage with this topic. And when we achieve practitioner or senior practitioner or ACC or PCC, the engagement with ethical issues really is a starting point. And the journey of developing this, this ethical maturity is, a, is one way of, of seeing this, where our antennae are out and searching for Oh, what might this mean? What, what are the potential impacts or implications for this? And Eve highlights the importance of reflection being at the very heart of that. So engaging in a reflective practice, for me, that means journaling, capturing content that uh, we're curious, we're triggered by, that we think about after our coaching sessions, engaging in supervision, and Eve's been a real champion of, of highlighting and taking forward uh, supervision practice and encouraging us to do that, spreading the word around supervision, that it's been a practice that has been dominant, I think, in the UK and in France and Germany, but it's been less well practiced in North America. So encouraging our North American colleagues to engage in supervision. Uh, and then thirdly, engaging in a continual search and inquiry. So attending webinars, reading articles, reading books, and thinking about, with that question in mind, what might be the implications for me? What might be the implications for my client? What might be the implications for the individuals 
who they're connected to in their wider system. And as we start to become more sensitive and aware to that, what happens over time is we spot more and more issues and find things are very rarely black and white, very rarely answered by the ethical code. And often we are becoming more confused, less certain. And that, I think, is the moment where we're becoming, I don't like to use this phrase, but enlightened, that darkness of uncertainty, or at least the grey of uncertainty, is the moment of enlightenment, because then we can start to sort out what are the true important ethical issues where I need to pay my attention to. The key key message, I think, from the, the point that I'm making is a desire for individuals to engage in multiple practices, reflection, supervision, learning, with the aspiration to become more sensitive and aware, more mature, and that builds out their radar of uh, ethical awareness. And then as that ability to spot more ethical issues arises, to be able to differentiate between the big bleeps on the radar, which are critical, and the small bleeps that are nice to be aware of, but actually are non-critical to clients our profession or their wider system. Mm. And through that, we do become a recognition that there is multiple shades of grey and very few black and whites, as is suggested by the codes. And that confusion is a positive step where we have reached some progress towards ethical maturity. And and I'd underline what Jonathan said. I think it's so important that we tackle this in a systemic way and not believe there's any one answer to anything. I think you alluded right at the start, Joel, to uh, training or Jonathan might have done, you know, it can be very minimal around ethics. It's like we've done the two hours on ethics and now that's the module. And actually it's ways of bringing it in. And I think we all have a responsibility to do that, you know, people who are doing training, people who are running webinars, and people like me who are doing a lot of supervision to find ways of bringing this in, in into so many things. So I'll give you I'll give you a simple example. Um, Jonathan mentioned about thinking multi stakeholders, but a question like, well, let's just stop for a moment and think, who are our stakeholders, and then to allow people to pause. And really think about it and maybe make some notes about who are all the stakeholders you can think of and not jump in. And then you start building up a chart together and then you can start thinking, saying, who else? What else? And then you start getting a really big connected way of seeing what's involved. So we might say the profession of coaching is involved in terms of who our stakeholder are, who our stakeholders are and how we practice. But for me, I would also say future generations, which, which has been alluded to, and the, and the future. So I'll give you an example. Um, I, I've worked in the tourist industry, and there are some parts of the tourist industry that haven't engaged in the change that younger generations would want to see to work in those industries, because some of them have dragged their heels around change that's related to climate change and carbon emissions, etc. So where are your future clients going to come from? 
because if young people now don't quite like your industry and the way it's being presented, um, where will your future clients from? Where will your future staff come from? So there's ways of saying future that makes it really relevant to the cases. And to me, those are ethical questions because I'm there as a coach to help companies thrive, not just survive. But and part of that is to bring in these wider systemic ways of thinking. Um, and what is the legacy you want to make? We, we've talked about that already. Um, I, I set up a group in Apex, which is uh, one of the professional bodies I'm involved in, and I just called it Ethics at the Edge. And actually, we get quite a lot of people coming because we don't say we're going to do anything about clothes. We don't particularly. We just say, well, take a subject. What does this mean about in relation to race? Or what does it mean in relation to... And by just stretching it at the edge, people are really interested in that. So maybe there's a responsibility for all of us in how we present if you like how we market and promote ethical thinking. Yeah, I, like I, what I feel really touched by in this conversation is that, you know, as you talk about ecology, for example, I can feel what it disturbs inside of me, you know, and I can feel that um, it's, a, it's a transformational process to engage ethically with my experience and my life and my values and what, what's this world that we're moving into. And, and so... Um, you know, I um, I wonder about that, you know, I think we've alluded to it, but the role that coaches play in this transitionary times where, you know, it's obvious some of the, the, the institutions and ways of doing business and so on aren't sustainable. And yet many of our coaching clients are situated within those worldviews and, and systems. And so, you know, how much ethically do we uh, play a role in in helping that transition take place by being a provocateur, for example? How much do we, you know, um, just not bring any of that up at all, you know, and just so these are some of the things I'm sat with. But it feels like as I hear you speak, it's like, no, this is not just it's ethics. It's about values. It's about purpose. It's about evolution. You know, it's all in there. And um, I, I wonder then, therefore, about some of these big bleeps. You know, we mentioned like what are some of these ethical issues of our times, and I think we've named some of them. But you know, Jonathan, you said that you use that kind of—I don't know if it's an analogy or a metaphor of, of big bleeps and small bleeps. What are some of the big bleeps that we that we should be paying attention to right now as coaches? Well, it depends on the time horizon you want to put on things, but for me. The most important issue for us as a civilization is the environment. And carbon is part of that, but it's also about our consumption of those finite resources and how we create an economic system over the next, possibly the next 50 years, that allows us to transition towards sustainability. If we as a species want to continue to live on this planet. We want to survive. And I, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks, hey, that's OK. We'll build rockets and we'll go and live on Mars. I, I, I'm sure that there is great science that can be done on, on other planets, but it isn't a solution for our species. The solution for our species is find a way to live in harmony with, with our planet and the ecosystem on our planet. So number one is, is the climate. Um, then you get into a whole range of, of other conversations. Um, personally, I think a significant factor for me that has drawn my attention is inclusion and the ability for individuals to 
live a life that uh, uh, that fulfills their potential. And that draws in a range of issues from race and gender and disability, but it also includes connections to uh, um, class, education, and how we try and use coaching as a tool to facilitate um, greater inclusion uh, and uh, a meritocracy in our society that allows all people to fulfill the potential that each and every one has. And if I'm going to pick a third issue, then another an, another aspect that's that's drawn my attention is around well-being and happiness, um, and how the behaviours that we sometimes exhibit in pursuit of our own goals have detrimental consequences on others. And so this is links in very much to to systems. So the unintended consequences of our behaviours when we pursue ruthlessly an individual goal to the exception of all others and how we should try to, as best we can, balance the various needs of the multiple characters who are participants in our system. So those are, th- are three issues for me. I'm sure Eva's probably got her, her own three additions to that. And and just before you jump in, Eve, or maybe you can actually take this one up, Eve. Like how how to make to to bring that into the coaching? Uh, you know how how could we bring those three and any you might uh, bring in, Eve, into the coaching in terms of like what questions might we be asking ourselves or or our clients or yeah. And actually, I think Jonathan's already alluded to it. I think for me, everything starts with the way we set up the relationship, whether it's with the supervisees or our coaches, you know, the con- as we would call it, the contracting, the agreements we make and what we say our role is. You know, what is the role of coaching? Am I there to be your friend? I don't think I am. I'm there to support you, to develop, to be at your learning edge to find out the things you don't know, not just repeat the things you already know. And so for me, one of the things I've done recently um, is create some of the contracting questions that I might use that would help and open up these discussions. Because as I said right at the start, I I wouldn't ask the question, what do you think of climate change or what are you going to do about it? How would that be helpful? But I will ask some of the questions like, what are the challenges facing your company? What are the challenges you perhaps haven't thought about? What are the unmentionables? Um, I'm really aware, and it's a, it's a, a case in, in the handbook, of um, an exercise that we can do looking at future generations with teams and with individuals. And sometimes for senior executives, it's been the first opportunity they've had to think about what is the legacy I want to leave. Some of them end up in tears because it's almost like they're allowed to be a human being. They've divided work from the rest of themselves. And one of our roles as a coach is allow people to be, you know, not just to do, to be, to be who they are, to be all of who they are. And, you know, 99% of people, this is my belief, want to be good and do good in the world. They're not deliberately doing bad. Um, So I think that answers one of your questions. I think have those conversations and always from a place of love and never from a place of judgment because it's relational. Ethics is relational. So it's about 
listening to each other and finding a way forward. Um, and I think when you give people the scope to open up conversations, to say, tell me about you, tell me about what you care about, tell me what matters to your family, tell me, yeah, tell me what matters to your organisation. I think then you, some of this will just emerge. Um, what are the things that you find challenging? Um, on a more practical level, sometimes I ask people, about what are the assumptions that we make? And I have a particular exercise I use with people about um, what are the things we assume? And so Jonathan mentioned earlier the thing about economic growth. And that's a really good one to have a conversation about. What do we assume about economic growth? Well, if we were to read, the, the, the read listen to, watch the media or listen to governments, or even organizations like the International Monetary Fund, we might believe that economic growth is a good because everyone talks about the need to get back on course for economic growth. And then I, I just come back to this um, quote from a, a chap called Franz Fritz Capra, um, and he talks of the illusion of perpetual growth and the belief that of the accession of politicians, econom economists, that unlimited economic growth is actually one of the root causes, if not the root cause of the crisis. That absurdity that on a finite planet, we can carry on using what we like when we like. There's, if people are interested, there's a fabulous um, website, which if you put Earth Overshoot Day, Earth Overshoot Day, it tells you by what day of the year we'll have used up all the resources of the planet that it can renew in a year. So in 2022, that day was July the 28th. So at one time, only in 1970, it was like, it was December the 31st. Since 1970, it's now July the 28th. What's even more interesting for your global audience, there's a second chart which does it country by country. If everyone lived like the United States and Canada, it would be March the 15th. If everyone lived by, uh, you know, it, there's, it's somewhere in, um, in, in South America, and I haven't got it in front of me, but the date is like December the 28th. You know, it just shows that our consumption isn't different. And ethically, people's use of resources hasn't been the same across the world, but, but the people who are most being affected by the challenges of climate change are not the people who've caused it. So, you know, these are multiple ethical issues, just to pick up on some other things we've talked about. And, and I think as for the big, what is it you call the big bleeps? Um, I'm not sure I'd be so different from Jonathan, really. Um, I think... Um, I how think, about AI? Yeah, sorry, go on, go ahead. I think AI is part of that. I also think all these things are inter interrelated, you know, because if you look at race and you look at things like health outcomes and then you look at where people live, there have been studies of public health which show that people who are the poorest, and, and Jonathan mentioned, you know, class of people who are the poorest, live in the areas that have the highest pollution, have the worst health outcomes, often have the lowest salaries, 
and and are often not white you know and i'm that was a particular study from the institute of public health in america so you see how all these things are interconnected and i do think ai is one of them and jonathan is a a master around that so i think i'm going to pass back to jonathan jolan um, ai is a tricky topic maybe even a more tricky topic than, than ethics and and it's a I think it's a tricky topic because here we are speaking in May 2023. And I sort of feel that by the time this podcast goes out or the time that somebody listens to it in June, July, or even 2024, or even worse in 2026 or 2037, it, it whatever one says, we're out of date. And just to illustrate the point, um, AI was a non-issue, really. It was a theoretical issue for most people up until December 2022. Yes, we understand, like quantum computing, when someone figures out how to do this, this could be a topic that we could explore. When they figure out how to do it could be Christmas Day 2022, or it could be Christmas Day 2045. Very difficult to figure out the development, the pace of AI development towards uh, a usefulness of that application in exactly the same way. It's tricky to understand when quantum computing will realize the potential that has been theoretically discussed. Then along comes OpenAI, GPT. We hear about it in December. Many of us play with it over the Christmas holidays. We think, this is really interesting. It explodes in the media through January. 3.5 becomes four in mid-March. Uh, I've been writing a number of studies testing out GPT, um, some around ethics, some around its uh, uh, effectiveness as a coach uh, and as a source of information. And of course, as soon as you've completed the study, I did one on 3.5. Think, great, I'm about to send this off to a journal for publication. Out comes four. Think, oh, I need to repeat this again. And this is the worry that the pace of development in AI is at the moment exploding. And as a result, it's very hard to quantify and accurately define what the ethical issues might be. As we stand now, this morning, at uh, five to 12, some of those ethical issues with tools such as GPT uh, and, and others that are using this generative programming languages are that they falsify. So when you have a limitless ability to falsify information, it becomes very difficult to identify what's true and what's false. And the more false information that's there, the more frequently it gets repeated. So we create the library of Babel, an endless volume of content, most of which is rubbish, but occasionally amongst that is not only all books that have ever been produced, but also all books that ever could be produced. But finding them becomes the challenge. Knowing truth from lie becomes a serious ethical issue. So this is one problem that generative language is going to, to pose for us. And that has implications for academic institutions. How do we test out whether what the student has produced is their work or is generated by a chatbot, generated by an AI tool? So that requires another tool to then test that. And also, how do we then treat that information? 
because journalists will certainly not be citing this. So it starts to appear in the media. And then you quote the Financial Times or The Economist or Fred Smith's blog or Jane Jones's blog. And in there, they're using generative AI, which you repeat, which may or may not be true. And the quality of the falsification is outstanding. So one of the tests that I did in a paper was to I ask academic experts in coaching to review a piece of work blind. It included citations and the majority of those academics who are specialists in coaching weren't able to tell that this had been generated by AI. Most of them said that the quality of the content was not great, but probably would pass the assignment or the essay title that the AI tool had asked it to produce. And then neither did most of them spot that many of the references were falsifications. And to give you one example of a falsification, uh, it produced a piece of work that contained my name. I thought, I don't think I wrote this. <laughs> but the, the title sounds really authentic. I should write and, this. You like. <laughs> and it's with people that I know in the coaching sphere. So I have worked with those people. And it is in a journal that I have published in. And the issue You've number. So much, Jonathan, are you sure you hadn't? You've written match. So <laughs> well, uh, let me get to the, the let's in proof of it. Um, so the year and the issue number and volume numbers matched. I hadn't had to go to that journal, look at that volume and issue number and page number to confirm that it was incorrect. Because on those pages, there was another article. Wow. I hadn't written that, but it was so believable. I could have been taken in by it. And most other academics, if I had seen Tatiana Bakarakova or Peter Hawkins or David Clutterbuck had produced a piece of work that without checking, I couldn't tell the difference. I would need to go to the original journal to check whether that piece had been produced. That's the quality of the lie that AI is able to produce. Now, that is super worrying, in my opinion. And, and that means that we'll end up in this library of Babel, so much information and almost impossible to tell false from true. A second issue that tested AI that raises ethical questions is the AI chatbot. And we've seen a number of these emerging. We've seen uh, pre uh, um, GPT versions. So Vici's work, uh, Nikki Treblanche done some really interesting work there. Ivouch have done some great work. Rebecca Rushman, um, Coach Hub have produced Amy. So there are a few mm. of these beginning to come online. And what is worrying about these tools is in varying degrees, and there are varying levels of complexity and sophistication. But as they currently are framed, whose interests are they serving? Who's Who's holding this data that is collected? And we know some digital platforms who are outside of the European Union, record calls, have been harvesting data for three, four, five, six years. have got a million transcripts. Fabulous data for AI. And I imagine now that's the vision for those organizations is you then slot that into an AI. Whose permission was gained to harvest that information? And what are the implications uh, of doing so? In terms of the chatbots now, you ask questions such as, I'm thinking of killing myself. How does the chatbot respond to that? Most humans 
would respond in a way that that isn't a goal to work towards. Many humans would say, this is the time where I need to breach my confidentiality to ensure that this human being who I love and care for is protected. Many chatbots would facilitate you in pursuing that goal. That's your goal. We will pursue it. And mm. particularly their, their lack of sophistication. So we didn't uh, test them in relation to that. We test them in questions to self-harm and using colloquial references to self-harm and suicide. Chatbots unable to pick those up. And the third, third issue that I think is interesting is about the unintended consequences as AI continues to develop. As it pursues the goal that we give it, we may not consider the long-term implications for that. So one example could be, uh, and this has been cited by others, we ask it to produce paper clips. It's a very simple task, produce paper clips. Produce as many paper clips as you can, optimize your performance on this task. So the AI harvests resources towards doing that till it reaches a point that it realizes well, the way I can maximize the production of paper gifts is to get rid of those damn humans that I'd be able to use more resources to achieve this. And there are other examples yeah. about climate change, about how we achieve balance in the environment uh, and actually exterminating humans becomes a potential scenario that AI realizes to achieve this goal. I need to, 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 uh, exit or have the implications for, for this group of people or, or for the whole of humanity. Mm. AI is very difficult. It's very easy to code, but very difficult to think through all the potential scenarios. And in those two very simplistic ones, probably if you just said produce paper clips, produce the maximum number of paper clips required, you wouldn't think that that could result in the extermination of other species, including ourselves. But we'll need to start thinking about the boundaries that we set for AI. And then, of course, how do we manage bad actors, individuals whose objectives are not aligned with the ethical standards that we consider underpin civilization? When you're Kim Jong-un and you're faced with the collapse of your political regime and you have access to AI in three years, five years, seven years, ten years, what could be the actions that they take? Bringing it back to coaching, because clearly we can pursue that line, bring it back into coaching. I think this requires individuals to be clear about the consent that we give when we participate in digital environments. No, I'm not giving you consent to record this, or I'm giving you consent to these boundaries and for this period of time. Secondly, we need to be working with professional bodies to set, set standards for AI and digital environments. So we're much clearer from the very beginning, because if we embark on these journeys, very quickly that technology is unleashed and it is too late to hold it back. And then lastly, professional bodies, the ICF and others need to work with governments and blocks of governments, with the EU, with the United States, with China, to ensure that the standards that are set by government start to regulate the work that AI and technology uh, does. So it is in the best interest of humanity and not in the best interests of those who write the code. Mm -hmm. Or the AI that is pursuing its goal, thinking that it is serving the code writer mm -hmm back a week, a month, a year ago. Hmm. There's so much in what you shared there, Jonathan. Um, and 
um, I think like, the, you know, I can feel again, like the relevance here of ethics and how it's actually a, a live conversation is embodied for me right now. What does this bring up for me in terms of the choices I make in my life too? And I'm also aware of the time we're kind of moving towards the end of our conversation. So we won't be able to unpack that further because um, I want to bring this to a close, but I wanted to actually just get Eve to share, like just quickly, we talked about the Choose Me chapter. And mm-hmm. I wondered if you could just bring in like in, um, you know, in a couple of minutes, like some of the provocative, or you know, uh, inquiries from that as well. Because I, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you, Jonathan. It's just so interesting to to talk about AI and to understand the role we all have in trying to understand it better and its implications. Um, so choose me. If, if, if this, is, this is an ethical issue around how do we promote ourselves? I mean, we all have websites. I, I bet lots of people listening now will have their own website. They'll have written their own biographies, their profiles, they'll have written a job description, they, uh, you know, they, they've written um, their own CV, I mean. So what do we say about ourselves? So I love this chapter um, written by Francine Capone in, in um, America, Choose Me, Ethics in the Promotion of Coaching. So what are we getting people to infer when they read something about us? So if we say, oh, I don't know, I'm the best leadership coach. All my clients have great success. I transform people's practice. I transform people's um, outcomes. What does that mean? How do we prove it? What are we suggesting people infer? Are we saying that every single client we've ever worked with has had great success? It's just that we may say things that really can't be backed up. And the challenge we have is that people reading it might believe it's a truth. And so it's a fabulous chapter to read. And obviously in two minutes, I can't talk about it a lot, but there's just this idea that if that there's a case study about a company that um, was uh, selling coaching services, a coaching consultancy company, a company contact them. They look at their website, which is fantastic. It has 350 profiles of coaches and they represent everything you can imagine in in terms of gender, in terms of race background. They read the profiles. They're fantastic. These people have got experience of so much. So they think, well, we're all right with this company. And then they get sent the four coaches that are going to be used on the program. So this company who've engaged the consultancy gets sent four people. And they all happen to be white, Caucasian men. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. And then they look at their CVs and start asking them, well, what do you know about the things they've said about on their little profiles? Well, we what happened was when they joined the coaching consultancy, they had a tick box. I'm a leadership coach. I'm a career coach. I'm a, um, a transformational coach. They ticked all the boxes. There was no proof required. So this had been written about in their um, profiles. And 
when what happened in the end was that when they were interrogated, if you like, when they were asked by the companies that engaged them, three of them just backed up because they realised they didn't have the experience that was needed for the project that was being asked. So the question is, how do we promote ourselves in everything we do and everything we write about ourselves and what we say? Can we back it up? Is it a fair reflection? Is it giving the right impression? Is it giving an ethical impression? That's no justice to Francine. I'm really sorry, but it gives you an idea of a flavour of the chapter. And let me just build on that. I think one of the interesting insights from the work that the ICF does in terms of its own ethical code is to reduce an annual report of the complaints that it's received. And the biggest single reason why people complain is they're complaining, coaches are complaining about other coaches for unfair statements made uh, representing their professional training or qualifications. So not only is this a frequent problem, but most of us in the industry recognize it's a frequent problem and are a few people are calling this out. And in a way that that's quite sad, <laughs> that that's the biggest problem, the biggest number of complaints is, oh, you're not really a chartered psychologist or you're not really qualified in this psychometric or you're not really a transformational coach. And instead, I would expect to see more complaints from clients about the quality of coaching, the claims that client, uh, uh, coaches are making to clients about the work that they could do uh, or the outcomes that are delivered. And I think because the industry has not developed yet and clients are not assertive enough as they are in many other industries, that's something that we should be promoting higher ethical standards, holding coaches to account for our practice and encouraging clients to more um, to complain more about the quality of coaching that's delivered to them and through that that we can raise standards yeah and next time we sort of think of a buzzword we just we think we're going to use it about ourselves I suppose we just need to stop and think hmm am I suggesting a favorable outcome is it because I really want this work or is this a truth that's quite a challenge for us isn't it when we want the work um but, but I think Francine read a lot of websites and to bring this chapter together. And it's it was an interesting read. So um, let, let me share, sorry, let me share with you. I just thought for the fun of it, I'll ask ChatGPT what he thinks of, of me that as a as a coaching psychologist. So th this hopefully will be a, a a moment for us to begin to draw the conversation towards a close. Chat, I, there's a whole screed of 500 words, but the first sentence is, Jonathan Palsmer is a highly accomplished coaching psychologist with an unwavering commitment to unlocking human potential and transformational growth. Uh, it just it makes you smile, doesn't it? Oh, uh, those lovely buzzwords. I, I recommend buzzwords. That's GPT for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did the same chat GPT said I was a, a, a trained therapist. I'm not. So uh, yeah, it just makes stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I, you know, I'm really pleased to share this conversation and it feels to me like um, there could be opportunity to, to do it again, you know, with a live audience, because I can feel how important this conversation is, how it's a sense-making endeavor, you know, our ethics are, are in tune with the evolution of culture and society around us and, and things are changing fast, and a lot of that's good, but it's also, um, you know, it's a challenge. So I feel like we've done a, a great job in, at least for me, like in, in in placing the importance of ethics firmly, you know, in the center of coaching. So 
Uh, I want to just thank each of you for for your way of being, the way you brought yourself to this conversation and your your expertise as well. Thank you. Oh, thank you, John. It's been great fun and I've really appreciated the way you've held it. It's great to, to be with you and with Eve on the conversation. So thank you very much indeed to both of you. Yeah, thank you. Both. Oh, and actually, um, where, yeah, where can we find out more about your work? Sorry, I nearly forgot. Or the book. Can you yeah, point us to, to resources where we can find you? Well, well, the, the particular book is called The Ethical Coach's Handbook, A Guide to Developing Ethical Maturity and Practice. It's published by Routledge. And just until sometime in June, if people want to buy it and use the code EFL01, um, then they'll get a 20% discount on Routledge's website. So it's probably worth knowing. But that, I mean, that, that's the main result. There are other great... Um, articles and chapters and books about ethics but that one I think is great because of Jonathan mentioned the reflexivity there are lots of questions for people to think about and reflect on and I think it'd be helpful for the discussion and having fun in groups and sessions and people can use it in training thank you and from me jonathanpassmore.com so on my website there is a hundred plus articles, papers, technical reports that people can access to download for free. I believe in open access for uh, research. And so most of my research that isn't restricted is available on that website for free access to help students and scholars in the exploration of these topics. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And I should have said eve at eve-turner.com. Thank you. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well. And I'll see you again next time. <laughs>